Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Gwenda Freeman is a Yorta Yorta woman and Associate Lecturer in Aboriginal Health Education at the University of Melbourne's Department of Rural Health based in Shepparton, Victoria. Her role supports local Aboriginal students who are studying health subjects and lectures in Aboriginal health particularly to the rurally based medical students. Gwenda is passionate about good Aboriginal health care especially due to the hesitancy around Western medicine and anxiety around racism that might prevent Aboriginal people from seeking out basic health services. Gwenda will also MC at the 5th annual Nawu Wanyara Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Conference, a one-day conference held in Shepparton, Victoria on Wednesday 16th of October 2019. The conference aims to facilitate the exchange of information on key issues in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's health and well-being, and provides a forum for the presentation of cutting-edge program initiatives and research findings by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health practitioners. Andy Horvath sat down to chat with Gwenda Freeman about her work. As a Yorta Yorta woman, Gwenda, what drew you towards the health industry? I think I've always been interested in health and well-being anyway. And from an Aboriginal perspective, health is probably a bit more all-embracing than we're used to speaking of it, you know, according to sort of more mainstream services. But I really, and I'm really motivated, I guess, in the areas of health promotion, preventable diseases, things like that. And because Aboriginal health has tended to be worse, have worse outcomes in terms of disability, um, years of um, life lost due to chronic health illnesses and also early death. It just seemed to be a really important area to work in. Were there particular events that made you think, this needs my attention? Um, I guess just the awareness that for a lot of Aboriginal people, we don't necessarily have the same kind of background. And it's because of history and it's because of trauma. So that Aboriginal people are often at a disadvantage from the very first point. So whereas you might have been brought up that if you're not well, you go to the doctor. For Aboriginal people, that might be a much bigger issue. There might be issues of racism. There might be history of difficulties. There might be hesitancy about um, Western medicine and all sorts of um, cost and other anxieties that often prevent people from being able to access what we would consider basic health services. Can you explain some of the misconceptions you've encountered that you've heard from various communities, white or Indigenous, about Aboriginal healthcare? I think probably the most glaring one is the number of people in mainstream health services, so non-Indigenous people who are, you know, might be wonderful nurses and doctors and, and so on, but 
who just say, look, if Aboriginal people want health services, they can come in here, same as anyone else, not realising the extra barriers that people have. And I think a lot of health services have started understanding more about it now and are becoming a bit more um, culturally sensitive to... Because uh, the reality is you do have to alter things to cater for all sorts of different types of people, including Aboriginal people. The other thing, of course, is that, I mean, Australia's huge and there's a lot of communities who have always been and still are in remote areas or what we in the towns might call remote. Um, to the Aboriginal people there, it's their home, it's their stories, it's their history and it's really the business of the health services to ensure that people are covered there just as they ensure people are covered in Melbourne or or Wangaratta or wherever, you know. You've been involved in Aboriginal healthcare for a long time. Tell us some things that have pleasantly surprised you or some successes that you've rejoiced in? Look, I think the the one that's made the biggest impact is the the changes that I've seen in my lifetime. Um, So having been brought up at a time that Aboriginal people weren't recognised legally as part of um, the Australian population to a time when people are being, uh, well, are graduating as doctors, nurses and so on. I mean, it's just wonderful to see because that's going to work a whole lot better. If there's something that you'd like to change right now and wave a magic wand, what would it be? That's a hard one because every approach to better health is complex or and and that's kind of obvious or it would have been done before but the sorts of things that really help are health promotion programs that the Aboriginal community has input into in fact is in charge of wherever possible because Aboriginal people in a community will know what will work best and how something will work well. Whereas just dumping a program that happened to work uh, for white people in Melbourne uh, onto a rural or remote Aboriginal community can be, you know, it's an, it can be alien. It's just not necessarily the most appropriate way to go. For those of us who are unfamiliar with the Aboriginal communities in remote areas, draw a picture for us about how it's different and what If we enter the field, we need to make sure we pay attention to. Well, I guess if I talk about Shepparton, which is where I'm based at the moment with the Department of Rural Health, there's quite a big population. So there's more Aboriginal people per capita than in Melbourne, for example, or in the whole of Victoria. Uh, So there's a rural area and that tends to happen um, along the river and where Aboriginal people have... Um, made their home. So there's more Aboriginal people around, so there's more need for user-friendly services. Many of the people have a background where only two generations ago, so that's, you know, they're 
current grandparents or grandparents who've recently passed away were not regarded as citizens, um, may have come from the uh, reserve. So for Shepparton, that would be Cumragunja, which is just over the border. One of the difficulties being that many of the tribal groups from along the river uh, were on both sides of the river. The river was central. So trying to cope with one part being Victoria and the other part being New South Wales is really hard. And then if you go particularly further into western New South Wales and Queensland and the Northern Territory, and I've spent some years there, some of the communities are so remote that the the people living there would rarely see a big town. They might not have a doctor available every day. They might not even have a nurse available every day. So they might have someone fly in every now and then. And so there's considerations like that where it can be really difficult. And if you compare that to where I live in rural Victoria, which is a little town called Avoca, it has every bit of infrastructure and facility. Um, uh, I'm not saying it's perfect in its you know, number of doctors there, for example, but doctors and medical services are in easy reach. There's easy access to television and advertising, for example, health promotions being advertised over the radio or on TV. Uh, And to compare that then with some of the remote communities, you can't help asking yourself, so how come there's all the infrastructure and services here and not there? Because really before colonisation, there there was no particular concept of rural or remote. Um, People were just living on their land as they had for thousands and thousands of years, wherever that might be in Australia. And to many people, it's very important that they continue living there because that's their heritage and their stories. The connection to the land. That's right, yeah. Now, some formal structures at the University of Melbourne are assisting you in setting up a course. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. We had been supporting local people in um, the Shepparton area to do the Master of Public Health. And that's been amazing because there's, at this very moment, um, five local people who hold a Master of Public Health, uh, three doing a PhD, Uh, We've got two more on the way. We'll graduate shortly. So that means that there's local Aboriginal people there who have the knowledge and understanding of the health system, the health sector, health issues right at their fingertips, which which is fantastic. Some of those people did feedback how much they appreciated the support that um, we were able to give them, but that a lot of it was a big challenge just because of it being the unknown. Uh, So some of the people coming in had years and years of work experience but may not have had an undergraduate degree. So what we've developed now is a course that goes um, for one year. It's a specialist certificate. It's made up of two subjects 
And by the time people do those subjects, they will hopefully be ready to to walk into other subjects in the Master of Public Health or anything that they decide to do and kind of be ready for it, have a good understanding of what's expected, how to do it, and um, therefore successful at doing it. And I think that the intensive support is sometimes really needed in that people don't have a kind of background family and knowledge of how the how academia works it's a it's a different language it's um you know has its own unique ways about it um, and yet at the same time it's the way to such great qualifications that can help aboriginal people be absolutely at the table in organising things for their own community. So there's a reaching out from the university and from the community coming together to finally get this right. That's right. These are good times. Well, it's fantastic to see. And and as I said before, it's just been amazing to see some of the changes happening in my lifetime. It's still slow. It's still not enough. There's still too many people who lack understanding about how to cater for the Indigenous population a whole lot better, not only in the health system but in education and in other areas too. What's one of the cultural things that you'd like white people to learn in how to interact with various Indigenous communities? That's a hard one because it's it's probably complex, but I guess stepping back and listening is always really helpful. Some of the health services now are running cultural awareness training. They're looking at making things a bit more culturally friendly around the hospital or health service or whatever it is. And, you know, and there's lots of things can can be done there. And I guess the people who say, look, Aboriginal people can come here, I treat everyone the same, I guess that's, that's not right. You, you don't treat everyone the same. You treat men and women differently. You, you get interpreters in for people who can't speak English. You, you have to cater the service to the people who are coming in. And if they, if they vary, then you need to know these you know, different ways of relating in the best way possible. So we need to customise to diversity. Absolutely. It makes complete sense. We celebrate differences, but we cater to them. And in that sense, we kind of unify what we can provide. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's it's a very generalist sort of approach. We really do need to customise, you're right. But there's some uh, wonderful Aboriginal people who are running cultural training and um, then, I mean, the next step after that is to see and get to know the Aboriginal people on the land where you are. So there's kind of generic training you can do, but there's also localised training that gives you an understanding of the local people, the local language and names, um, what people would like or expect. Because the reality is there were so many different Aboriginal units, um, uh, language groups, tribes, whatever you want to call them, countries is really probably the best name and best estimates are that there were 250 to 300 separate groups each with their own language and culture in Australia at the time of colonisation. 
Can you share some language with us? Um, perhaps something that uh, allows us to communicate in an Indigenous language that wishes one well? I can only tell you some yada yada, which I've been absolutely thrilled to be learning. And I'm able to because even though when people were on Kamragunja Reserve, they were forbidden to speak language, it was lost virtually in a generation, as I understand it. Some wonderful people have been reconstructing it. And in the late 90s, they produced um, a dictionary, which is, you know, a fantastic start for learning some words. So if I wanted to say, hey, uh, um, the equivalent would be day. 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 And um, if I wanted to say, are you healthy? I would be saying, yada itchamite. Because yoda means no, and ichamite means sick. So the idea of healthy, as per English, is kind of not sick. But bear in mind that that sick, uh, that's a broad term that covers a lot of issues, even further than the physical and mental health that the Western system is used to. So, for example, not having homes, uh, not having people to contact, not having um, your country, all of those things contribute to you not being well. Um, and the ideal is that the community's well on country and people will have a lot better chance of better health. Uh, and that's hard, of course, for a lot of places because they've been broken up and in some ways there's no going back. Um, but of course, we modernise the same as anyone does. And um, I think that uh, the newer generations now are aware of both the need for that sense of belonging to culture and country for their own well-being, and likewise the opportunities that are available these days um, for travel, different education. And there's been a, a lovely coming together recently of traditional healers, traditional Aboriginal healers, and what you might call Western medicine. So I know the Nungaris, the Pitjantjara people from um, South Australia. Uh, the South Australian Health Department has recruited some of the Nungaris to actually work in the hospitals and health services in Adelaide along with the mainstream medicine there. And they're very happy to because Aboriginal people can see that Western medicine offers some things that traditional medicine doesn't, but also that traditional medicine covers things that Western medicine neglects. So it's good coming together. That's lovely. That's sort of adding to the spirit of that, individuals. That's right, yeah. Yorta Ichimai. Ichimite. Ichimite. Yeah. Yorta Ichimite. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Gwenda Freeman, navigate us through the conference that's coming up real soon. Okay. The conference is an Aboriginal health conference. It's called Nawu Wanyara, and um, that's local language in Shepparton. 
Uh, this is the fifth year it's run, and it's uh, it's going to be run as a, a one-day conference. There'll be heaps of topics. People will have a chance of choosing topics. They'll all be Aboriginal health, all presentations on different aspects of um, programs, research and so on that's happening in Australia. So we'll have local speakers, we'll have speakers from afar, We've got guest speakers coming, so Pat Anderson is our keynote speaker, and you might know of Pat. She was involved in running uh, one of the early Aboriginal medical services in the Northern Territory, so she's going to be inspirational. She's involved with Loacher Research at the moment. So for the rest of it, there's a day of intense presentations, uh, being able to mix with all sorts of different people with interest in Aboriginal health. And there's a dinner in the evening, and that um, will be absolutely wonderful. And our, our guest at the dinner is Archie Roach, which is fantastic to have. I'm absolutely fascinated by Indigenous healing methods that are done in conjunction with Western science. I think that that translation happens the best where you are able to recruit Aboriginal people to um, run the program because they will have knowledge, they'll be in touch with the local community and they'll be able to help translate it. So the value of having Aboriginal staff is incredible. And some of those programs might be anything from checking people's eyesight, educating about diabetes and the complications, might be talking about how to become a health professional yourself, um, learning about some of the ways that people are able to get into and navigate the educational system. And, you know, it won't be all the answers. We haven't got those, but there'll be some wonderful ideas there and some wonderful examples of projects that are happening and working. Colonisation globally has never been good for Indigenous communities. Tell us about Australia. Yeah, I mean, if you look at history, certainly the history that I learned at school... Colonisation was really around taking over as much of the world as possible, um, usually more for the resources and the power rather than anything good for the people. And so therefore, Indigenous populations all over the world have suffered hugely from that process. But certainly for our Aboriginal population here in Australia today... Most have ancestors who were killed or died tragically. Most have grandparents, great-grandparents who suffered and probably overcame great obstacles to participate in life today. And, of course, there are the casualties of that kind of trauma. That was followed then by taking the children away. So... Lots of mums who were happy and proud of their kids. The kids were taken away. It was assumed by the English to be for the good of the children, but in a way that was a terrible assumption to make because it was on the basis that Aboriginal women wouldn't have known how to parent properly or wouldn't have given their children the skills they need. 
if you can imagine the grief for any mother, any family of having children taken away like that, um, and that grief is lingering and is now probably dominated more by the stolen generation people themselves who are asking questions and saying, you know, so what happened to my family? Who are they? Where do I come from? And that's a really hard one. And I, I remember an interview in the Stolen Generations film that was done a while back and the woman being interviewed said that she was brought up in a home where everything was done by the whistle, as it were, or by the clock. She said, I had my kids and I didn't know how to look after them. I had no role models. I had no examples of how to look after my children. And that's one of the biggest tragedies, I think, for Aboriginal people is that kind of um, dislocation from home, family, country, everything like that. And so therefore, for most Aboriginal people, that kind of trauma is there in much greater proportion than is trauma in the wider population. Gwenda Freeman, you're heralding in relearning and healing. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you to Gwenda Freeman, Associate Lecturer in Aboriginal Health Education, Department of Rural Health, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Dr Andy Horvath. The Nauwuanyara Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Conference will be held in Shepparton, Victoria on Wednesday 16th of October 2019. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on October 7, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.